Every time the people of God gather together, it's a good day. Today's a good day, too, for a different reason and for a unique way, for a unique reason. And that, as we said at the beginning of our worship service today, we're going to ordain Ben Seneca as an assistant pastor. What I want to do, though, to start us off is to recognize this. It's a day of celebration. And if at some point during the service you see Ben just do this, please understand that's why. It's just this great deal of elation on his part and relief. But like I was telling him earlier this morning, in a lot of ways, this moment is not unlike the day that he married his wife, Janae. Um, At that moment, it was probably very possible that the officiant at his wedding said uh, that marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly, but rather is to be entered into uh, discreetly, reservedly, and soberly, and in the fear of God. And so just as both joy and sobriety were not at cross purposes then, so it is not at cross purposes on this day. And so I want to invite us all to consider not just the joy of what he's doing, but the sobriety that we all must experience in order to understand what he's getting into. And the way I'd like to encourage a sense of sobriety is is to appeal to one of his Germanic cousins from the Danish tradition, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, This is something that I read from him a few years ago that has haunted me ever since I read it. It is speaking of the relationship between a father and his child. The father, a one who was a pious person. But I think it equally applies to the moment we're considering now. So listen to what Kierkegaard says. The greatest danger for a child where religion is concerned is not that his father or tutor should be a free thinker. Not even his being a hypocrite. No, the danger lies in his being a pious, God-fearing man and in the child being convinced thereof, but that he should nevertheless notice that deep in his soul there lies hidden an unrest, which consequently not even the fear of God and piety could calm. The danger is that the child in this situation is almost provoked to draw a conclusion about God, that God is not infinite love. It's a haunting sort of experience, haunting sort of uh, situation that Kierkegaard is envisioning there. Almost as if the child would be better off in a house that believed in no God than in one that believed in a God and yet betrayed a certain unfamiliarity with the love of God. He's talking about the way of learning to speak with outward claims that belie an inward emptiness. And though he's talking about the relationship between a father and a child, I think it's equally applicable between a pastor and his parish. As if to say this, friends, and Ben, your greatest temptation in the pastorate will not be to immorality or to debauchery or to greed. It will be the temptation to learn how to fake it. It will be temptation to stand before many in a public way and proclaim the excellencies of Christ and yet inwardly be utterly empty. And that is a sobering call. Not one that we should cast a pall upon these proceedings and feel dread, but to realize how dependent we are upon the Lord for strength in that endeavor. What I want to speak to is from Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is a psalm of David. It is an acrostic. For those of you who remember that SAT word, in that every single verse begins with the subsequent letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And I think this text captures the ministry ABCs. Not only for the sake of Ben, but for the sake of anybody that would ever be entrusted unto his care. For the sake of anybody that would follow the Lord. So listen, if you will. And if you can, stand. We're going to be in Psalm 34. 
Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There are 22 verses in that text. I see four things that I think capture the essence, the ABCs of ministry, the essence, the ABCs of following in the Lord. And the first is this. Ben, if you would be a minister of the gospel unto this people, folks, if you would be ministered to by him, then you must understand that the ABCs of ministry is, first of all, going public with your private boast. Going public with your private boast. Those, those first few verses are not unfamiliar kind of language. He is effusive about what he believes to be true of God. And that's why he says, my, the praise of the Lord is continually upon my lips. He has become convinced of something, of God, and he can't stop talking about it. He is gushing, and in that gushing, he goes public with it. He says, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. It's on his lips. He's inviting everybody else to join in with him. Why? Why is he public? Because he's become convinced of something very personal. Something very private. He has been convinced of where his boast should be found. He makes his boast to live, he says in verse 2. So this word boast, what, what is it? It's a, it's a big Bible word and you should acquaint yourself with it as much as you can. Because it is also a word that we are familiar with. We boast about all sorts of things. We, we boast about a team. Um, one of these days, Walt Childs might be able to actually boast about the Florida Gators again. Maybe, right? We, we boast about anything. We, we boast about our favorite team. We, we boast about our kids. If I walk through your house, I'm going to see where your boast is. Because you end up putting most publicly that which you find the greatest joy in, what you find precious. And, and 
to hear that, you know, Ben's, that's not new to him, and, and that's not new to you too. And what David is saying is that he's found his boast in the Lord. And what we mean by boast there from a biblical perspective is, what is that, as one person has put it, what is that inner ballast in you? What is that thing you give the most attention to? What is that thing you depend most on? And in keeping with the metaphor of ballast, what is that thing that, that you have to have to be true in order for your life not to capsize like a boat? That's your boast. That's your ballast. And David is saying he finds his ballast, his boast in the Lord. Now, why is that even a big deal? Why is that even the essence of what it means to be ministry? Because here's the thing. Ben, church, there is no such thing about finding your boast in God automatically. It does not happen on autopilot. Every one of you in this room has a boast. And if the Lord isn't your boast, something else will be. And David, by implication, is trying to tell Ben and me and you that unless the Lord is your boast, something else will, and yet nothing else can. And there is nothing like ministry to stand in for your boast, Ben. Nothing like doing the work of God to be a substitute for your boast being in him. We have a fellow pastor who I'm told is, lives in Greenville, North Carolina, who's been writing these wonderful things called the anti-psalms. He's taken any number of the psalms and imagined an alternative universe, the antithesis of the psalm, that we might actually understand what the psalm is getting at. And he did a wonderful rendition, a recasting of Psalm 23, to explain to us what would it look like if the Lord is not your shepherd, if the Lord is not your boast, And if, in fact, ministry exists in the upside down. Here's what it might listen like. The approbation of others is my shepherd. I shall always be in want. There is no nourishment. It's never enough. Anxiety and performance are my lot. My soul is exhausted. I must constantly be my best self for my namesake. Can anybody relate? Yeah. If the Lord ain't your shepherd, if the Lord ain't your boast, then that will. And good luck with that. Folks, Ben is tasked with the responsibility of reminding us all what it means to find our boast in the Lord and then to go public with it. Grace Brevard, Grace Mills River, you are entitled to ask him at any time, who is my boast? How do I find my boast in the Lord? Because when he is doing that faithfully, you will go public with your private boast. There is no public boast that's true that doesn't find its origins in something deeply private, but there is no private boast that doesn't go public too. And that's the first element of ministry in him. The second, though, is this, because all of this talk about boasting might lead you to think that ministry is an act of heroism, that Ben is out to be your hero. That's a wrong assumption. David, in this passage, is anything but heroic in his language. You heard him in the next few verses in verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. He talks about crying out to the Lord. He talks about this poor man who was delivered. He's telling stories on himself. He's telling stories about others. That what it means to be in ministry, what it means 
to follow the Lord is secondly this. Not just that you go public with your private boast, but that you dig a visible rut in where you run for refuge. You dig a visible rut in where you run for refuge in God. It's what David is doing. He is outspoken about his fears. This weird fears is not sort of the sort of the trivial anxieties that confront him on a daily basis. He's talking about the things that preoccupy his mind and terrorize his heart. And he is speaking to the crowd, to Ben, to me, to you, that the Lord has delivered him from his fears. Ben, the challenge in ministry will you for you is that in the midst of those fears to find your refuge somewhere else. In other things, in entertainments, in that which you might consume, in stuff that might be good, but which really isn't a refuge. The challenge will be to cut a rug, to cut a rut in a refuge in running to the Lord and then speaking openly of it. Because when you are outspoken about that, as counterintuitive as that might seem, David's not worried about being open about where he's finding his refuge. The Apostle Paul was forthright about speaking of his anxieties and how God came to relieve him. And the Gospels do not conceal the fact that Jesus was in anguish at times in his effort to be faithful. If they didn't have a problem with it, why should you? Why should you? Faithfulness in him and faithfulness in ministry will always mean digging a visible rut in where you run for refuge. That is the way of followership. It's not about being heroic. That gets us to a third element, though, of what it means to be faithful in ministry. What is the essence of it? What is the essence of following him? And it has to do with submission. Um, David has certainly been vocal, and he's certainly been public, but he's not being vocal or public for being vocal or being public's sake. He's out to instruct. He's out to say, hey, man, follow me. And he does. He says, I want to teach you. And therefore, Ben, this is your gig. You're out to instruct us. You're out to show us what it means to walk in the way of the Lord. But let's be really clear about what David is doing here. Yeah, he's very concrete. He's very um, constructive about the sorts of things that he says. He says, um, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking to speak. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. All very straightforward. All very concrete. But let's be really clear what David is not doing. He is not merely rattling off a checklist of ethics that we perform. He is saying that in the submission to God, there is a kind of satisfaction to be had. That those who seek the Lord, he says, lack no good. Good. Not just ethically sound, but goodness is found. In the submission there is satisfaction. In submission there is savor. The very middle of the psalm. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's not just saying, hey man, take note of the ethical soundness of this word. He's not just saying, grasp its inner logic. He's saying, feel it man. Delight in it women. See, there's a kind of obedience that is just slavish and compliant. It is going through the motions. That is not the kind of obedience that David is espousing here. 
He is inviting any who would listen to him to discover the beauty and the goodness in the wisdom. Can you imagine just for a moment how different your life would be if you had only learned how to tame your tongue? Can you imagine how much different this world would be if everybody's first inclination was to seek peace and pursue it? Lord, friends, how many allegations of abuse are singing through the airwaves? Imagine what would happen if all of us believed that the bodies were so sacred that we treated every single one with dignity. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Yes, we go public with our private boast. Yes, we dig a visible rut in where we run for refuge. But thirdly, your responsibility, Ben, is to show us the savor of submission. Grace Brevard, Grace Mills River, it is your joy, your entitlement to be able to come to Ben at any time and say, what does it mean to follow God? And at the same time, it is your entitlement to ask Ben, why should I? And why is it good that I do? And why even in the pain that sometimes comes with following him, why is that also better than the alternative? Ben's gig is to speak to that question. In which case, we're not talking just here about the execution of faithfulness. We're talking about motivation. What's beneath the obedience? And that gets me to the last aspect of, I think, the ministry ABCs and of walking and following God in its essentials, and it's this. Ben's responsibility unto us is to offer us consolation in the immediate while anchoring it in the ultimate. Offering us consolation in the immediate while anchoring it in the ultimate. That's a long word. What do I mean by that? The most bleak, bracing language of this psalm comes at the end where David is saying over and over again about the brokenhearted and about the afflicted and about those who are crying out and about the trials of the righteous. You can't accuse David of wearing rose-colored glasses. You can't accuse David's greater son, Jesus, from doing the same when he himself tells his disciples, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But as surely as David is unequivocal here about the sorrows attendant to being righteous and being faithful, he is also unequivocal about the consolation that comes to us from the Lord. And Ben's responsibility is to bring that consolation, not to be the source of it, but to be an envoy of that consolation. By his presence before you, by his weeping with you, by his prayers for you, by his kindness to you, all of that is him being an envoy of that consolation in the immediate but realize that when he brings that consolation, he will always be anchoring it to the ultimate consolation. And what is that ultimate consolation? You might have heard there in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That might sound familiar. Because it's in the New Testament, that very verse. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. When Jesus is on the cross and the centurion is play, poised to break his legs that he might suffocate, he discovers that Jesus is already dead. And there John repeats this, not one of his bones was broken. 
But before Jesus breathes his last, he says these words. It is finished. It's finished. What's finished? Why what's finished is what's hinted at in the very last verse of this psalm. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What David spoke of as a hint, Jesus comes and fulfills in full clarity. Because in his blood, on that cross, he delivered us from an enslavement to sin, to guilt, and to death. On his cross, by his blood, he delivered us from condemnation. Jesus fulfills what David anticipates. That's the ultimate consolation of God. And you know what? I say that, and you hear that every week, and you're going to hear that from Ben in some form or fashion every time, and you're going to think, yeah, that's what pastors are supposed to say. And yeah, I know that's what the gospel is, but man, can you bring it out of the ether? Because it is almost too high-sounding for its own good. So let me put it where I think is true and will make sense with an appeal to none other than a first lady of the United States. Eleanor Roosevelt may be, according to Ken Burns' documentary a few, year ago, a few years ago, might be the most impressive, productive, and long-suffering first lady we've ever had. But in a very candid moment in one of her memoirs, she said this. Up to a point, it is good for us to know that there are people in the world who will give us love and unquestioned loyalty. I doubt, however, if it is good for us to feel assured of this devotion without the accompanying obligation of having to justify this devotion by our behavior. What she says is this. It might be nice to believe that there is a steadfast love out there, but it's probably better for us all to have our expectation levels set lower and appropriately. That the only kind of steadfast love out there is one that we have to justify by our own devotion. Now, Eleanor Roosevelt had her reasons for believing that to be a foundational plank of the way she saw the world, but here's the deal. Most of us think like she does a lot of the time. Ben, we're going to grow faint in our believing that there is a love that will not let us go, but we will never grow weary of the story of it. And your job, despite the way our zeal flags, despite the way we might have heard it over and over again, is to remind us that there is, in fact, a steadfast love that is not looking for reciprocity. That there is a steadfast love that has nothing to do with justifying its devotion to us. That there is a steadfast love that we don't merit, that we don't earn. We will not grow weary of hearing that. And in Jesus, he reminds us that there is, in fact, infinite love. And if we hear that, you're fulfilling your calling. Because when you're doing that, you are making public with your private boast. When you are doing that, you are digging a visible rut towards where you run for refuge. When you are doing that, you are showing us the savor of submission. And when you are doing that, you are, in fact, confirming to us we don't have to fake it. We can just lean into it and give him thanks and show him forth and love him well. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.